Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Al Levy. I want to take a second and tell you about something that I am very excited about, and it's the URM Summit. Once a year, we hold an event where hundreds of producers from all over the world come together for four days of networking, workshops, seminars, and hanging out. This industry is all about relationships, and think about it. What could you gain from getting to personally know your peers from all over the world who have the same goals as you, the same struggles as you, and who can help inspire you, motivate you, as well as become potential professional collaborators? This year's summit is on November 9th through 11th at the Las Vegas Westin, which is just one block off of the Strip, and it's going to be even bigger and better than ever. We're anticipating even more producers, plus a lineup of amazing guests like Jens Bogren, Chris Crummett, Machine, Forrester Savell, Michael Agian, Dave Otero, Billy Decker, Chris Adler, Mary Zimmer, Mike Mowry, Jesse Cannon, Blasco, Jason Leckberg, Jesco Lohan, and more. And of course, our musical guest, the one and only Ark Spire. So get your summit tickets now at urmsummit.com, and we will see you in Vegas. Today on the URM podcast, my guest is Mr. Dave Schiffman, who is a producer and two-time Grammy Award-winning engineer and mixer out of L.A. You can hear Schiffman's work on music of all stripes, from jazz to grindcore. He's worked with legendary artists such as Audio Slave, Tom Petty, Vampire Weekend, La Dispute, Adele, Jimmy at World, and... Many, 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 many more. I'm not going to spend the next hour going down the list, so look it up. Anyways, Dave, how are you doing? Thanks for being here. I'm doing good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you. I have a question for you, something interesting that I noticed in my prep, which is something that I think we can all relate to. It says here that you know you could be working with some huge act one month, but then if there's a cancellation, you could go an entire month without work. And I, I wanted to talk about that a little bit because I think that up-and-comers think that that type of thing ends once you become quote-unquote successful. And I just don't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I still don't think that's true. <laughs> no, I. You know, I, I wish. Uh, un- unfortunately, you're kind of at the. Uh, if you are engineering, you're at the will of the producer and band. And the record company, if they decide, you know what, we're not ready to go into the studio right now, uh, we're going to hold off, you know, well, you don't really have any recourse there. You know, I, I know that there are some, some record companies, some management companies, whatever, will make a, uh, you know, will make a deal, will get somebody paid for a partial payment for uh, canceled work. But um, I, you know you can't really count on it. That's sometimes you know. Right. That's, right. And that's if they're cool. Yeah. I've definitely had that go both ways. The worst one, and this was my stupidity. Mm. So you know, feel free to tell me I'm stupid. <laughs> but uh, I started working on a project, and I knew the label involved personally. Right. And this band was getting signed to them, and I guess. They didn't tell me that the deal wasn't finished when, for when the studio was booked. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. So I had confirmed the studio time with the band. Label said, go for it. You know, figured if the label's saying go for it, it's go for it. So week one goes by, 
and I should have gotten some sort of down payment or first half or something right. a while ago. Right. But I figure I know these people, they're my friends, uh, I, I'm sure it'll come. Week two, it's like, what is going on? There's no money. I'm buying the band food, and what? what is this? Turns yeah. out they didn't even sign the deal, <laughs> and then the deal fell through. Oh. So, like, on week three, and then the band disintegrated. So, yeah, all these weeks of unpaid work, um, it was my stupidity for not doing not doing enough due diligence. But sometimes you just, there's, I feel like sometimes there's some scenarios where you just think shit's going to be okay. Absolutely. Because you've known people for a long time. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, everybody has the best intentions, but, uh, Communication is critical, and you know I have to credit my uh, my managers, past and present, for really staying on top of that because that's something that I think had I if I had to be responsible for that, I, I'm sure I would have gone down the same route you did because you don't want to come off to the band as being uh, you know uh, financially driven. Uh, I don't know if that's the right term. I, I, I guess, yeah, yeah. It, it makes you know, makes it awkward, right? I, and I, I try and make it a, a a rule not to really discuss uh, business with the band in the studio. That just always feels like bad uh, bad juju to me. It just um, you know it can make for uncomfortable conversations and for uh, people going, "Well, wait, I didn't know that's what they were paying you," or you know things like that. And I really don't want to bring that into the studio if I can help it. So it's really, you know, it's important to have it all worked out before you walk in the door and to be upfront and to be as like, okay, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to confirm studio time until I've got something signed from you guys or a PO that says we are good to go. And I, I totally don't blame you for doing what you did because... Had I not been, you know, uh, under uh, a good manager and somebody who taught me all this, I, I wouldn't have known any different, and I probably would have done the same exact thing. I should have known better. I already knew this by this point in time. Right. It was like the one time that I let it slide. Yeah. Because I knew everyone involved personally. Sure. And of course, those those are the times that it gets you. Always. Always, you, you, you're right. It's it's like when you're not on top of stuff. That's when it happens. You know, that's when it falls through the cracks. Uh, and, you know, to this day, I still you know run into that. You know, hopefully not on a, a large scale, but there's a, there'll always be something where I'm like, oh, damn it. You know, we should have talked about that. Or, oh, wait a second. You know, am I on the hook for that? I shouldn't be on the hook for that. And that's you know that. Definitely, you know, bad on my part for not, you know, being prepared and having it all figured out. But you know, it's one of these things too, where I mean, you can only plan for what you can plan for, and there's a certain element of of just us not being psychic that comes into comes into play. Though I do think in this situation I was talking about, it was my fault. I messed that one up. But there are things that you just can't really totally planned for. I mean, you can't get every single detail. No, you're absolutely right. But I guess part of doing what we do is, or I found anyway, is 
being able to anticipate. And it, it's like, you know, it's something that drives my wife nuts, actually, because I'm the guy who, you know, she'll say, well, let's go here. And I'll say, well, if we go there, aren't we going to hit a lot of traffic? Or, you know, it's like, that's, that's how my brain works, where I'm always trying to think two or three steps ahead instead of, you know, okay, we're just going to do this and, you know, let the chips fall where they may. And I feel like because of, you know, what it is I do for a living, you know, my career has really shaped that part of my brain. And it's, you know, it's a blessing and a curse. <laughs> As I'm sure she'll tell you, you know, because it's just like, you know, I just become the bummer because I'm like, oh, well, you know, we can't do that, you know, because, uh, and <laughs> she'll be like, oh, yeah, great. Okay, thanks. You know, so <laughs> it's double-edged sword, I guess. Well, what did you do before you had management? How did you navigate these waters? Well, you know, that was part of me uh, seeking out management was uh, I was working with a producer pretty much full-time, and the work was good. Um, you know, the uh, there wasn't an issue with with money or anything like that. But every once in a while, you know, there would be a booking for, you know, say a month or, or, or even like a week or something. And then literally like the day of, the day we were supposed to start, it would get canceled or it would get postponed. Ouch. And I'd be sitting there like, holy shit, you know, what am I going to do now? You know, I was counting on this money coming in. I was, this is how I was going to pay my rent. This is how I was going to pay my taxes or whatever. And, and then it's not there or it's going to be there, but, you know, nobody's told me when. So I was in no position to, uh, you know, ask for, you know, half of the payment up front or, you know, or any sort of a cancel fee or anything like that because, I just didn't know any better. I just thought, well, you know, that's how the cookie crumbles. That's what you get. And uh, that was when I thought, you know, it's. I, I see all these other people I know who work with managers. Maybe it's time I talk to somebody. And I did, and that started a relationship with a, a manager who I was with for uh, for, for twenty one years. And oh, wow. uh, yeah, and it was it was great. And you know, he really taught me a lot, and you know, had my back on a lot of that stuff, and. Made sure, you know, I was just, I, I was just a little more comfortable. I could breathe a little easier. Uh, that's to say, you know, just be a little more sure of what was coming down the line. You know, I think a lot of people have a misconception about what a manager does. Yeah. Whereas a lot of people think that a manager's job is to get you the work. And I think that maybe that happens sometimes, but. I really think their job is to make sure that everything is legit and on the up and up with the work that you're getting and that nobody is, uh, that, you know, that you're in the best possible scenario with, with the jobs. And maybe sometimes they'll get work, but I don't think that that's their number one job. You're absolutely right. I, I think maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it, there was a little more of a, uh, you know, A&R people would send demos to managers and managers would, you know, send it to the client they felt appropriate or the couple of clients they felt appropriate. And, you know, he'd report back to the A&R guy, well, so-and-so's interested, so-and-so's interested. But 
since the A&R structure at most big labels and probably a lot of the smaller ones has changed, that isn't really how it goes anymore. You know, I think there still is some of that, but there's a lot less of it. And I think right now the manager's job is to make sure, like you said, that it's all above board and that you're being treated uh, fairly and that, you know, you're going to walk away satisfied with the deal. And, you know, obviously he's going to profit from that as well, or he or she, I should say. So it's supposed to be a win-win kind of thing, I guess. At what point do you think is a good idea as a producer to seek out representation? Uh, I think when your representation has something to sell you on. Fair enough. If you haven't really accomplished, uh, you know, a significant credit, you know, something that has, you know, gotten the attention of either the press or the public or, you know, the inner circle of people who make records, then I think it's really hard for uh, management to go out and, uh, you know, help you negotiate a deal or help put you in a situation where you can find work. Absolutely. Because if, if they're recommending you to somebody, you know, recommending you to a label or a manager or, you know, who, what have you, the, their first question is going to be, well, who's that? I've never heard of them, you know? Oh, it's just some, just some guy I know. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. It, there's some misconceptions about lots of these roles in the music industry. Like, it's about publicists, too. Yeah. As well as what a label will and won't do. But the, I think the common bond here is that these people need something to work with. Right. <laughs> they, they're not, they, they can't create something out of nothing. And they're not magicians. They do their job based off of what you give them to do their job with. And, and, and that goes for record companies also. I, I mean, yeah, totally. You know, I, I've, I've worked with a lot of, um, you know, first-timer bands, you know, who you're know, making their first record. And, you know, sometimes we have these conversations where, you know, the band feels like, okay, well, or all their dreams have come true, their success. And it's like, and the first thing I say to most of them is like, you don't understand. I was like, this is the easy part. Making the record is the easy, fun part. I was like, after this is when the work starts. You know, now you have to go out and sell yourself, not just, you know, nine to five, 24-7, you are on the clock, you are selling your band. And, you know, that may sound... Like you're running for office. Exactly. And and that may sound really kind of harsh and, uh, you know, corporate-like, but it's like, you know, if you want this to be what you do for a living, then, you know, it is, it is a tough gig. It is not, you know, it doesn't just... Nobody walks up and hands you the keys to the kingdom. You have to go steal them. And you have to go out there and do what you need to do. You know, you got to get into a van and go play clubs. You got to go play in front of eight people the first time, hoping that next time there'll be 16 people. You know, it's a, it, it is a tough road. And for bands who don't understand that and don't get that, you know, it's going to be a rude awakening or it's just not going to happen, you know. Speaking of tough roads, as a producer, you definitely worked your way up over quite a long period of time, but from what you said yourself was the gopher position. Right. <laughs> and I've noticed that, I've, and this bugs me whenever I see this, I see some people who say they want to do this, say they're not willing to put up with the 
they want they want the gigs with these big producers, but they don't want to go through that gopher period. And I'm wondering, what did you learn through that gopher period, and how did it help you get to the next step? I think it's a, a great lesson in humility, and also just understanding that there really is a lot you don't know, and you know you learn it from observation and from watching how other people do it. And, you know, the, the hierarchy has changed a lot. In, uh, you know, back when I was starting out, the way you got in was you started out as a runner and, uh, you know, you would help uh, when the assistant got an engineering gig, you would be his assistant. So he would kind of show you the ropes. You know, this is how you set up. This is how you break down. This is how you wrap a mic cord. This is how you plug in a mic. You know, and, you know, they taught you everything. And it's like, and this is how our studio does this. This is how our studio does that. And, you know, that's, that was how you learned it. And now, now that the studio world has shrunk uh, dramatically, I, you know, I think people who are trying to break in, there's a bunch of different routes to go in, but it's a, a lot less, um, I, I mean, not that there was any security to begin with, but now it's like, I, I don't even know how I would suggest somebody work their way in. You know, there, there are still studios where you can get a job, but, you know, very few. And, uh, you know, most people are booking time at studios, myself included. Uh, for a record, you will book a room for... Four to five days, you get the drums, and then you move out, and you go someplace else. I mean, even though it's changed to where there aren't as many big studios, that doesn't mean there's no producers. I mean, you need an assistant or assistants, right? Yes, yes and no. I mean, like, I, it's imperative, like, if I'm at a somebody else's studio, yes, I need somebody who can interface with the room and who can get stuff set up and, you know, get me to where I need to be to start working. If I'm in my own room, no, I don't need anybody else. And and it's set up that way on purpose because these days what I need to do is I need to do everything I can to keep my costs down. And, you know, most producers will tell you the same thing. It's like, you know, because it's it's we live in the world of the all-in deal. It's like, yep. I'm going to pay you X amount of dollars to do this work and it's and it's you know at twenty percent of what it was maybe ten years ago. So you've got to figure out how to make that make sense for you. And so you lone wolf you lone wolf it basically once you're back at your place. Yeah, once I'm back at my place, that there's really no reason to have somebody there. I'm fairly self sufficient. You know, I, I I set up I put together my whole setup, so I know how, where everything is. And so it doesn't make sense for me to have somebody there. You know, it'd be great to have somebody there, like once the mix was done, I could say, okay, uh, run off the mixes and I'll see you later. That would be great. And I know guys who do that, um, but I just haven't really found the uh, the reason to have somebody to come in and do that. Not that there aren't uh, qualified people and not that, you know, there's plenty of people who have hit me up about it, but I just... I just can't rationalize it. And I and I would feel bad, honestly, to have somebody sitting there on my couch waiting for me to ask them to do something because it may be a couple of days before I need somebody to help me. Sounds like you've got it figured out. I, You know, I, I think for 
for how I make records and for what I do, I feel like I do. I feel like I've got like my system down the, in a way that it works right. Sounds like you've got your workflow dialed to where it is machine-like in its efficiency. Because there, I don't think there's a way to pull off what you're describing without having just a machine-like workflow. Well, I, I think it's the, the workflow needed to be in such a way that I could work on multiple things at the same time. And this is all just uh, a matter of survival. You know, uh, what, like around 2008, I think it was, when, you know, kind of the proverbial shit hit the fan and all the big labels, you know, slaughtered their rosters. You know, they dropped tons of bands, tons of artists. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the, the, the tipping point. That was like, okay, well, you know that... That first record budget of $175,000, well, now it's $20,000. And you know what? We want the record to sound exactly the same. And so that how, do sounds you, how do you do that? Yeah. <laughs> how, how, do you, how do you make that work and still manage to put food on the table, you know, doing what you love? You know, th that was the thing. It's like I, there's, there really isn't anything else I'm qualified to do. And there really isn't anything else that I want to do. So... You know, out of that desperation, I had to figure out how am I going to keep doing this and being able to, you know, provide for my family and myself. You know what's interesting here is that to, so people whose careers came about after 2008, $20,000 is a pretty good budget to them That's because right. they didn't know any That's different. Right. But for yeah. the guys from before then, it's like having to learn how to work under brand new parameters where the, your resources for a project are just slashed. Right. Slashed. Right. So you've solved the problem through efficiency and workflow, it sounds like. Yeah, I, and I, I think that's what it's about. And also, you know, it's about um, artists kind of understanding that and management and record companies and, you know, being like, okay, well, you know what? I know that you need to jump on to this other project for a couple of days. So you do that, and then you come back to us and do this. And, you know, it's kind of like, it's, it's like juggling. And, you know, everybody kind of has to be on board. And, you know, look, not every record I do is a $20,000 budget. There's, you know, I've definitely still worked on records that have significant budgets, and those are awesome. And they're... It's great to be a part of them, and it's usually amazing artists, and it's usually, you know, working at a real nice studio and all that. And there's still that, that still does exist. But I'd say for the most part, you know, if you work like in the independent world and the DIY world, that doesn't exist. So you have to figure out how to make that work for your, you know, how you want to live, you know, your lifestyle. So can we talk a little bit about the nitty-gritty of your workflow? You say you have to bounce between projects a lot. Uh, are you 100% in the box with mixes, or do you have a system for quick recalls with analog? How, how, do, you, how do you do it? Well, it, it's, uh, I'm, I'd say I'm a hybrid in the box and, and analog. What I do is I mix through uh, the uh, Shadow Hills Equinox, which is a breakout uh, box of uh, 32 channels. It's uh, 20, so it's uh, 
I guess, 24 or 12 stereo channels, 24 tracks, and then eight mono tracks that come down to a stereo blend. From there, I go into a fully analog chain that goes into a Burl A to D converter back in a Pro Tools, and that's how I print my mix. So the only thing that I have to document is my analog stereo bus chain, which is something that I'm always trying to tune up and looking for different ways to get the uh, best, to get it to sound as much like a uh, a console as I can, as I can, you know, to the point where I think it sounds right or it, it sounds to me like, uh, you know, it doesn't sound like it's in the box to where it sounds like it is like a, a more natural desky sounding mix. Now, you know, a lot of the guys I know who are former all analog guys who are now working hybrid, who are in a situation kind of like you where they have to be able to jump around a lot. What they do, or what they've told me that they do, is um, that the analog gear side of things, those settings never change. And right. so they, they have... They have different pieces for different purposes, and all they tweak is you know the the input level, right? And that is set for what it's you know for its purpose, and that's that, right? And they don't they don't mess with that. Do you, do you kind of go about it that way? <laughs> I wish I did, but I don't. Um, did, didn't I, sound like you did. That's no, what I was wondering. I, I I really don't, and you know and. I want to say I totally get it that you know there are guys out there that do that and they have the extensive amount of gear that they can do that you know um, if you have five yeah that's exactly right they'll five eleven seventy sixes or you know four LA two A's you know if if you have that and you can do that you know more power to you that's great but I don't I have some really nice gear I don't have a ton of it but. I have enough to where, okay, I want to run this vocal through my 2254. So I'll do that. I'll find something that I like in terms of how it reacts with the track and how it sounds with the vocal. And then I print it. And there's my vocal sound with the 2254 in the computer. Now, if I decide somewhere along the, lo- somewhere along the way, you know what, that's not really working for me anymore. Well, you know what? Then I'll try it through my 1176, or I'll go back through the 2254, and I'll change my uh, my threshold or my compression or something like that. And then I'll print it again, and I'll put it on a playlist, and I'll say, okay, this was 2254 number two. You know, okay, this one sits better, and and I'll do that with you know all the outboard gear I use, and that way when I do recall it. Well, all that outboard gear stuff is printed, so I don't have to go back and recall it. And if I want that 2254 on six tracks or 20 tracks, I can do that. And I can change the setting for however I want it to sound or do, and I print it, and it's there. I mean, do you have like a notebook full of all these recalls? Well, uh, for the the recalls for my stereo bus, yes, I have a uh, a template for the EQ. I'm you know the stereo bus uh, EQ that I like, 
and I have a uh, you know I document my compressor settings and my uh, um, I just recently uh, bought a uh, a piece from a company called Tree Audio and it's called a trunk T R U N K for I, I, yeah it's 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 funny and essentially all it is. Yeah, it's a full monitoring system, but what I'm using it for right now is just the stereo bus because it's this tube stereo bus that's kind of at the end of my chain right now, or not not at the total end of my chain, but I guess right after my EQ. Yeah, so I guess it's like the end of the chain right now, and that's kind of the last thing my mix is hitting. And you can sit there and you have like a, a variable output on it and you can just kind of find the sweet spot uh, like you're running through a console. And I've just found that it translates fantastically. It just sounds, it just really makes this difference that it's hard to articulate I'm, what I'm it is. I'm looking it up right now. Oh, okay. It's hard to articulate what it does, but it just sounds better. <laughs> <laughs> and I just does something good. I apologize that I don't have a technical spec to explain it, but it's uh, it's something where the vocal just becomes a little more uh, focused. The uh, the depth becomes a little bit deeper. The uh, the reverb becomes a little more uh, three dimensional. Just things like that. Just it, it just kind of opens up the mix and. It just feels more like an analog print, you know, how I remember like half inch or quarter inch sounding. And that's kind of been my ultimate goal for my mix chain is to get it to where I remember going through a console sounds like and to get that feel, but be able to flip between <laughs> three different records in in the same afternoon. I'm looking at their stuff right now. These are some big boy toys for sure. Yes, they, they are, and they're yeah, you know, they're built fantastic. I mean, the thing's built like a tank. It weighs as much as a tree. I mean, it's huge, but uh, it really, really sounds good paired up with the Equinox, especially. I'm looking at the uh, the trunk stereo bus monitoring section, right? And I, I see I see a few things. So you said you have the trunk. Yes. Okay. God, that thing does look huge. Yeah. It's just a... <laughs> military grade. Muscular. Very muscular. Yeah, with all the military grade uh, like helicopter switches on it. It's, uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty cool looking. Nice. So question f- about how you came up. Yeah. Um, you came up through the, I guess, the old system of becoming the... The gopher, then assistant, then working under people. But you didn't just work under a producer. I mean, you worked with Rick Rubin. Right. What was is it like? I mean, I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but I'm just wondering, what's it like having to keep up with a genius, basically? <laughs> it was always, uh, you know, you, you kind of always had to be ready for anything. It would be a ride, you know, one day we're uh, recording a uh, Kavali band, you know, from Pakistan. And the next day, uh, you know, we're in with System of a Down. It was just all over the place. And just kind of having to 
pick up and recalibrate and decide, okay, well, we're recording all acoustic instruments right now, or we're recording a ear-splitting kind of metal, you know, overture. (laughs) And it was just kind of being ready for whatever he threw at me. And uh, it was great. It was, you know, it was priceless, uh, you know, baptism by fire, but it was, uh, it was amazing. How did that come about? It, like, how did it come about that he was cool to work with you? Well, it started, I was uh, an assistant at uh, Oceanway Studios, which uh, is no more. Uh, it was Alan Sides' studio in Hollywood. And I was a staff assistant there. I'd been working there, I guess, about a year. I'd moved out from uh, from New York, and uh, I was assigned to work with uh, with Rick and then engineer Richard Dodd uh, to do vocals on uh, with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. So you were just assigned? Yeah, I, I was assigned. I made it known to the. Uh, to the studio manager, I saw it in the book. I was like, "Hey, I'd love to work on that." <laughs> and, and she said, "And she said, well, okay, l- let me see what happens." You know, because I didn't really have any uh, seniority at that point. I had only been there for about a year, and there were other guys who had been there. I mean, like ten years, twelve years, which is crazy. But um, uh, I ended up on it. Uh, you know, and ten uh, years as assistants. Yeah, yeah, like. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't get it, but I I got assigned to the to the record, which was great. Got in there with Richard and Rick and Anthony came, and you know we did some vocals, and uh, then you know Anthony had some other stuff going on, so uh, he kind of he wasn't coming in, but we still had the room. So instead of canceling the room. Rick uh, just threw some other stuff at Richard for him to do. You know, mix these Jayhawks songs. You know, let's uh, remix this Tom Petty track. Let's do that. So it was just me and Richard in there, just, you know, and Richard just remixing all this stuff. Most of it on the monitor side of the console, which was incredible. <laughs> you know, he would, he was, he's just such a purist and was just such a great sense of balance and, uh, you know, just really uh, a master of that. And, um, you know, this was going on for, you know, I guess like a week or something. And then I think, you know, Richard had been in, Richard's from Nashville. He had been in LA for a couple of weeks at least. And I think he was ready to go home. I think, you know, he missed his family. He was just kind of, I guess, a little burnt out. So he turns to me one day and he said, well, you know what? I'm heading home next week. Do you want to take over? And I said, seriously? Just like that. <laughs> yeah. I said, seriously, really? And he's like, yeah. He's like, you're you're up to it. You can do it. I like, yes. I was like, I'm down. Sign me up. And he's like, okay, well, I'll talk to uh, Rick's assistant, and uh, I guess they'll let you know. And I said, great. So in the meantime, Richard left, and they didn't cancel the time for the room. Rick was down the hall. I think Rick might have had like two or three rooms going at that time. It was uh, I was in Studio Three with with uh, Richard and the Chili Peppers. He was also in Studio Two with Danzig, and then around the corner in another room there was something else going on, and I can't remember what it was. 
but I think he had three rooms going at the same time over at Ocean Way. So very prolific at that point. But there wasn't really anything to do in Studio 3, except I knew that there was a, uh, a Jayhawks track that needed to be mixed. So I put it up and I just started to mix it on my own. Worked on it for, uh, for a day, printed a cassette that's right, a cassette mix. <laughs> and uh, saw Rick walking down the hall heading to two one day. And I walked out and I was like, hey, Rick. I said, I just mixed, uh, I think it was Tomorrow the Greengrass was the name of the song. I was like, can, uh, I just did a mix of this. I know you guys need it. I was like, here, you know, check it out. And if you like it, it'd be great if you used it. And he takes his head. He's like, all right, come on back with me. Come back to Studio Two. So... Go back to Studio Two, and he we pop the cassette in, and he listens and looks at me. He's like, "Great." He's like, "This is cool. Thanks. Thanks for doing that." <laughs> then I hear nothing. Was your mind blown? I was like, "Wow, that's pretty cool." It was that easy. It was that easy, but it was just you know, I guess having the uh, the nerve to actually do that, and you know, feeling like I was able to back it up at the time because I think that's what it's about. You know, if you if you are going to do something like that, you you have to be able to back it up and really stand behind the work. That's actually where I think most people would would fall short is not taking that chance when when it came up. Like first of all, requesting the Ruben session. I think a lot of people would say, nah, I'm not ready for that or Someone else will just get it, so I'm not even going to try. So I think that's the first place where people would fail on the quest. And then the second place would have been, uh, like, say say that whoever it is who made it in uh, did a good job. I, I would assume that no bad engineers would make it to the Ruben session, so that's assumed. But then when the engineer told you he was leaving, do you want to take over, I think there's... There is a group of people who would have been like, nah, out of fear, out of fear that they'd mess it up. Sure. So then the third level is actually having the balls to grab that track that nobody assigned to you. And then the fourth is to actually show it to them. <laughs> so that's, right. that's four levels right there of right. where I think a lot of people would just fall off because because they're too scared to to go forward. You know, it, it definitely was a pretty big meatball. And I I don't know what possessed me to kind of go forward at that point. I think I had decided, you know, maybe uh, right when I started at Ocean Way that I was going to just give this a couple of years. And if nothing, like, flushed out, then I was going to move on and look for uh, another career or another... Uh, you know, another avenue. So, so this is like a Hail Mary? It was, I guess it was kind of my Hail Mary where I was like, you know what, I have nothing to lose here. It's like, if he likes it, great. If he doesn't like it, well, that's okay too. I mean, I, I'm not going to lose my job here. Um, I may be stuck here a little longer than I want to be, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not really going anywhere. So, you know, that's how I rationalized it. And that's how I saw it as kind of, for lack of a better word, safe. You know, everybody has their own degree of what's safe. And I guess some people may have thought, wow, that's crazy. But it didn't feel that crazy to me at the time. It felt like, 
you know, this is what needed to happen. It just seemed kind of crystal clear that that was the right way to go. I mean, it's a big swing, but without taking the swing, you don't hit the grand slam. I mean, there is the possibility of striking out, but I mean, if you don't take the at-bat, you're sealing your own fate. Exactly. It's like you got to get up to the plate first. And uh, I, I was lucky that he was receptive about it, and I guess he saw something in that that he's like, well, that's somebody who I want in my camp, you know. But um, but it didn't actually uh, come to fruition right then. Like, uh, he, was, he thanked me for it. He said, great. He's like, I'll see you soon. And then the next week, we started up again, and it was with another engineer doing vocals with Anthony. Like, they didn't hire me. And I was kind of like, okay, well, you know what? I tried, and he didn't laugh at me. And, you know, I feel like I'd made some sort of progress, but then they brought in this other guy to do vocals with Anthony. Name your accomplishments. Number one, didn't get laughed at by Rick Rubin. Exactly. I mean, (laughs) it's still pretty cool. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, so this other guy starts, and he... um, well, we'll just say he was he was quite proud of himself and, uh, you know, really thought he had got it all figured out. And uh, One of those. You know, yeah. So, you know, one of the things about working at Oshaway, which made it, you know, an incredible opportunity, was that the assistant ran the tape machine, you know, ran the multi-track machine because they were these old ATR-124s. You know, they were like, we used to call them washing machines because they were huge. They were massive and they were really, really, um, they were touchy. They had, you know, all these little um, odd things that could go wrong with them or things that you had to be on top of. Like the remote was this plasma readout and it could, you know, you, there were so many ways you could get burned on this remote that um, most engineers... Burned as in fuck make up a mistake. the tape? Yeah, okay. yeah like, like you, you would be in repro when you were supposed to be in sync, or you could have uh, two tracks armed instead of one, or half of your tracks were in repro and the other half were in sync. You know, fun things like that. And, uh, you know... One of the jobs as the assistant was that you had to know how to run that machine and you had to be comfortable on it. So, you know, being on staff there, I was. And, you know, the machine was, you know, I, the machine and I were one. <laughs> and which was great because when uh, it was time to do punch ins and you were sitting there, you know, it was between you and the musician. You know, there wasn't anybody else who was. Who was doing this, you know, it was like, you know, the producer, the engineer would tell you, okay, we're going in on bar seven. You know, you got to be like, okay, bar seven. But I knew that I had to anticipate my punch. Whereas most, you know, the, the old Studer machines, you could punch right on the downbeat. And it was pretty forgiving. It's like, you know, you'd punch in there and it would sound great. If you did that on the ATRs, you'd get this click or you'd get like, or it would miss because it took like a millisecond for the bias to come up on these machines. So you had to anticipate your punch. So if you're going in on the downbeat of one, you had to start punching on the and, 
<laughs> to get in on the one. That's a big anticipation. Yeah, and it's like at first when you when you kind of when you first start like messing around with the machine, you feel it. You're like, wow, okay. And you know, you develop, you kind of develop the sense. And you know, the guys who have been there longer than I was were great at it, and they all had their little, you know, cheat sheets and you know their little, um, you know, they had their remotes with their presets so that they could move around and, you know, be quick about it. And I, as I worked there, I developed my own and, you know, kind of got into the same rhythm as they did. So, yeah, getting way off topic here, but... No, it's fascinating stuff. What happened was uh, this engineer decided that he didn't need me to run the machine. He was more than, you know, more than capable of running his own tape machine. And how dare I... Famous last words right here. Right. How dare I insinuate that he wasn't able to run the tape machine? And, and I was like, okay, you know what? It, it's all you. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to show you a couple of things so you don't get into trouble. And he like, he, he's like leered at me. He's like, he's like, you don't have to show me anything. He's like, I know how to run a goddamn tape machine. And I was like, okay. Good luck. <laughs> so I just turned around, walked over to the couch, and sat down and proceeded to watch him bury himself in mistakes, just one after another, just multiple tracks in record, the wrong track in record, you know, in repro instead of sync, you know, all the, you know, the, all the, all the fuck ups that, you know, we were trained to avoid or to be cognizant of and be able to get ourselves out of as quickly as possible. And he just, one mistake after another, and I could just see the exasperation building on Rick's face. You know, Rick was, uh, to my knowledge, has never been a shouter or has never gotten in anybody's face. That's just not his vibe. You know, very mellow, like soft-spoken, low-key guy. But I could see so, it. So it's you, Rick, this the cocky guy right. and Anthony Kiedis. Right, and Anthony's out in the in the room, and, you know, he, he doesn't really know what's going on, you know, because nobody was explaining to him that <laughs> there are all these fuck-ups going on. <laughs> but, you know, I can, I can see it on Rick's face that he's just like, oh, my God, this is fucking ridiculous. And so we, you know, we get through the first day. Um, you know, Rick leaves. I can see him look over at me like... Oh boy, and uh, you know I, I kind of get this look from him, and I was <laughs> like, look. "I was like, yeah, oh boy, you're right." And uh, the but next, that, that's a bonding moment, though, isn't it? It, it, it kind of was, and I kind of knew that something was up. I was, I, you know, I at the end of the night, I was like, "There's no way this is going to keep up like this. They're going to have to bring somebody else in," you know. And at that point, I still assumed that they would just find somebody else because. That's what happens, you know? And the next day, uh, Rick's assistant calls me and she said, hey, are you available to engineer for Rick tomorrow? Uh, Ocean Way isn't booked, isn't available, so we're going over to Sound Factory. Can you go with him? And I was like, shit, yes. Okay, no problem, I'm in. And uh, I called Ocean Way. I was like, I'm not available uh, tomorrow. I'm going with Rick to Sound Factory. <laughs> and there's silence <laughs> on the other end of the phone. And she's like, she's like, what do you mean? I was like, they called me to engineer the vocal session. And she said, 
okay, well, when are you going to be back? I said, I don't know. I said, you know, we're booked over there for the whole week, so I guess take me out of the schedule for next week. And she's like, okay, great. And uh, <laughs> then just the reaction from some of the other assistants was like, wait a second, what? You're doing Pure what? hate, I'm uh, sure. Well, just like disbelief. And then, you know, definitely some, some less than, you know, nice... <laughs> <laughs> responses, but I'd say for the most part, they were all kind of like, well, you know what, it's your it's your funeral. You know, good for you, good luck. You know, oh man, it, it's going to suck working for him. Oh my God, why would you do that? That's crazy. Yeah, why would you? Like? Yeah, and I'm like, I'm like, what do you mean, why would I do that? I was like, are, are we talking about the same person here, you know? And I mean, it's easy for them to say that to themselves so that they don't cry right. over the fact that it didn't happen. Right, right. And, uh, you know, and from that point on, it was a pretty, you know, more or less steady eight years of working with him on various records. And, uh, you know, it was, it was great. It was, you know, the best experience I could have asked for. It, um, learning, learning on the job, you know, on my feet and being able to think on my feet. You know, that's what that taught me was being able to think on my feet and being ready to, you know, okay, how are we going to make that happen? Oh, it's 10 at night and we're having 10 people come in to do strings. Okay. Well, I guess I got to set up for a string date. You know, it, it was just kind of like, there wasn't even a, there was no way to say no to any of it. You just had to make it happen. And I think that was a really good lesson about, you know, how to be a, uh, you know, a valued part of the team is you just figure it out. And, you know, if, if there is something that just is beyond your control and, and isn't going to happen, then you got to be straight with whoever you're working for and say, all right, here's what I've tried, here's what I've done, but I'm not getting what it is you need. So... I need some guidance here. What what am I supposed to do now? The very first time that that came up with Rick, like that you were not able to to do what he had tasked you to do. How were you fucking freaking out? And how, how did you go about it? How did you go about making it cool? Well, I you know what I just went with the you know what I'm just going to tell him how it is. I'm I'm not going to. I'm not going to bullshit him because what's what's the point in that? What's it going to accomplish if, you know, because we're all wor working towards the same thing here. And, you know, I, I can't remember exactly what that event was, but, you know, I remember going to him and explaining the situation. And he said, okay, well, tell me what, what you need to have happen. And I told him what I thought should happen. And he said, okay then let's do that. And it was that simple. So that's a good leader. That's a good leader. Yeah. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about him. Um, a lot of people like to dog him because because uh, he has other people. Well, I, I guess because they think that he has other people, quote unquote, do all the work, which I think is total bullshit. I think that he's more like what a producer is for movies. Um, combined with what a director does. Uh, but defining a vision, 
and helping making sure that that vision comes to life and then working with the very best people who can go to work to make that vision, almost like a general, I think, from everything I know about him. And so everything I hear about him is just that he's such a good leader. Like when someone comes to you that you trust, who's working for you, and they say, I can't do this, well, what do you need to be able to make it done? This and this, okay. And then you just trust the person to go get it done. That makes for a great working relationship, whereas some people would have flipped out. Right. Well, and I, and I think it was also about being able to deliver on it, saying, well, if you give me this, this, and this, then I can make that happen. And by him saying yes, it's like, okay, well, now the onus is on me to make it happen. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, you know there's definitely that pressure there, but you're right. It, it was like he, I think he's the type of person that once he's decided that he trusts you, then he trusts you and he's good with that. So I think there's a, it's a certain person that, you know, that is able to do that. And, uh, you know, to be, and, and I felt like once you were part of that team, you know, you were part of that team and it was like, that was it. You were, um, you know, your, your opinions were taken and, uh, you know, uh, put into the equation and, uh, that's how things got figured out. Why would he have picked you otherwise if he didn't trust you? Well, it, exactly. And, you know, I, I've heard, you know, the the rumors that fly around the business about, you know, the the work stylings of, <laughs> of Rick. And it's, uh, you know, I think th- the way I describe it is you either love working with Rick or you don't. You like how he does things or you don't. I, I don't think there's a middle ground there. And I think if you are the type of artist who likes what he does, then you're going to have a great experience. But if you're looking for a different approach, you know, maybe a more of a more hand-holding, then, then you might be disappointed. You might not get what it is you're looking for. So, you know, I, nobody's going to please everybody. And, you know... Not everybody connects well with every artist, and I think that would that goes all the way up the food chain. I mean, he has connected though really well with quite a few. Exactly, the track the track record is unbelievable. Speaks for itself, exactly. And I think that you know to deny that would be really you know short sighted, and. You know, yes, he did count on, uh, you know, when I was working for him, yes, he did count on me for a lot. But you know what? That's, I, I, I don't, I didn't see that as weird. I didn't see that as, uh, you know, oh, he's not doing anything. I just saw that as part of my job, you know, and that's, uh, you know, it was, I saw it as, as a team effort. Um, Absolutely. The general doesn't do the work of the people under him. Right. General finds the right people and has them do what they need to do to get the objective taken care of in the big picture. And, you know, like he always had an opinion. And I think, you know, one of the most frustrating things about working with a uh, an artist or another producer is when they don't have an opinion about something where they, you know, where someone will say to me, oh, well, it's not right. 
it's like, okay, well, what isn't right about it? You know, what is it that you don't like or what is it that you would change? You know, you, you have to give me some sort of, you know, guidance. You know, what can I do to make this more to your liking? What, it, what is going to uh, accomplish the goal you're setting out to achieve? And Rick was always very clear about that, to me anyway. You know, if he didn't like the drum sound, there was a reason he didn't like the drum sound. He's like, well, you know, you know he'd say something like, the snare sounds like it's down the hallway. He's like, I, I, we need the snare closer. I need the snare right here, you know, and he'd have his hand up to his face. And you're like, okay, I got to figure out how to get the snare drier. Mm-hmm. I, need the sn- I need it more in my face. So, you know, there was at least an opinion there. And, you know, that to me makes the world of difference. Because if you work with somebody who has no opinion, you're kind of like you're throwing shit against the wall. It's like, well, how's this? How's this? You know, somebody says, well, I don't really like the vocal sound. You know, that's, that's such a, that's such a ball, <laughs> as such a ball of nothing. It's like, great. Well, what are you, what are you looking for? And, you know, well, can you try something else? Well, something else what? <laughs> you know, it, 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 it you, you can't, it, it's like when you're, when you, are mixing a track or recording something, you hear it, you know, a certain way. You go with your gut. You go with your instincts. It's like, okay, I'm hearing it like this. That doesn't mean everybody's going to agree with that or everybody's going to hear it the same way. And that's fine. It's all subjective, obviously. So what is it that you don't like about it? You know, is it is it too bright? Is it too warm? You know, is it too much bottom end? Is it too compressed? Is it not compressed enough? Is it too wet? Is it too dry? Is there too much delay? You know, there, there has to be some sort of tangible thing that, you know, y- you have to help me with. Because otherwise, you know, we could be here until, you know, the end of time. Just going to take a quick break, and I promise it's going to be quick, but it's important. I need to remind you guys, so please forgive me. This episode is brought to you by the URM Summit. Four days of networking, workshops, seminars, and hanging out with your URM friends and dozens of the industry's best pros. It's November 8th through 11 at the Las Vegas Westin, and tickets are available right now at urmsummit.com. All right, back to the episode. I'm sure that also taught you the importance of specificity when... You would then, you know, later on in your career as a freelancer or just working in any of those scenarios, I'm sure that taught you how to properly present a problem to somebody else. Because I've learned this too. You can't, I mean, it's not just in production, it's in business too. You, you can't just go up to somebody who's been working on something and be like, this sucks. Right. I mean, you can if you want them to hate you or right. to get, or to mentally check out, but that's not that's not a good way to do things. Um, you know, you might be giving a comment on something that you're not the expert on. So it seems to me like Rick hires people who are experts. It, like he works with a series of experts to help fulfill his vision. I could be wrong, but that's what it strikes me as. And I think that like when you're running a business, it's the same thing. Like you hire people who are better than you at certain things that are crucial that 
you need that need to happen, but that you might not be the expert on. So when you talk to them, they might you might be talking to them about something that you know they spent twenty years to get good at that you don't know that much about, and so. It is easy to just say that's wrong. That's the easiest thing to do, but it's the worst thing too. You definitely need to tell them why it's wrong and um, give some sort of, maybe you can't give them the technical solution. Like when I'm working with someone who codes, I don't know code for shit. So right. I can't go in and say it's wrong because of, these lines of code, and I need you to fix them. To th- I can't do that, but I can definitely say this is off because of this and this. We needed it to be more like such and such. I mean, right. this is cool, but we need it to be more like this. Right. I think you really need to be able to explain. And right, it doesn't have to be technical. I think no, but it doesn't as, at all. But I think I think. A great artist is also a great communicator because that's what absolutely great, that's what great art does. Is it, it communicates to other people. So I think, and and I definitely feel like this has been my experience. I think the people who are more artistically comfortable or more comfortable with what they uh, with who they are and are aware of what they're trying to do are able to verbalize better what it is they they need or what or what it is that they're not liking about what's going on. I think that that usually those people are better able to explain, well, I don't like this and this is why or, you know, I was hoping that this could be more like that. I'm hearing more of this and that. You know, I'm hearing, you know, more ambience around my drums than I'm getting, or you know, why why isn't the uh, kick drum you know why isn't there more like attack on the kick drum? You know, I want the kick drum to feel I want more impact from the kick drum. You know, it's like it's these kind of descriptors that really help me be creative, if that makes sense. I think totally what it is I do, and you know, this profession, I think. My creativity feeds off other people's um, goals. It's like, I want it to be like this. And then that's where my creativity comes in, where I need to make it like that. And it's not really how you make the sausage. It's the, it's the sausage at the end. It's, it's how you got there. And, or what, not how you got there, but what's there. So it sounds like, like you love figuring out the equation for how to bring somebody else's vision to life. Yes, absolutely. I, you know, I, and you know, this has been my uh, my line to most artists or bands that I'm meeting with is, I don't want this record to sound like Dave Schiffman. I want it to sound like you guys. I I want to be invisible. I don't want somebody to listen to this and go, oh, Schiffman did this. I, that's that. There's no. That makes no sense to me. It's like I'm trying to get somebody else's vision to speak the best it can. So, you know, somebody to to be, uh, you know, a band to make their best record or be the best of themselves. Inserting myself into the equation sonically just seems completely out of line. It sounds to me too like what you love is in realizing their vision, like almost that your vision is 
to properly realize a great artist's vision. Whether the great artist was Rick Rubin or whoever you're working with now. Exactly. Uh, you know, at the end of a record, the ultimate compliment is we never thought we could sound this good or this record has gone beyond our expectations. We never imagined it would get here. I mean, that's, that to me is, you know, the, the best compliment ever because you've taken somebody's vision and not only have you achieved it, but you've excelled, you've gone past it. I mean, how could you ask for anything more than that? I don't think you can. So I guess that brings up that what do you do? How do you get through it when you're working with someone that doesn't have a very defined vision? <laughs> it, <laughs> it, can, it can be difficult. Uh, I, you know, I find those records to be the biggest struggles because, you know, then you have to, uh, you know, you have to count on your own vision. <laughs> and you have to I guess this kind of it goes full circle to what we were first talking about with the uh, managers and publicists and labels that you can't like you can't expect a publicist to create your story for you right. like you have to have a story for them to pitch uh the publicity outlets on a manager they can't manage a career that doesn't exist or that's not in demand right you have to have that demand already and then they can manage what you give them to work with just like you need to have that vision coming in from the artist or you got to make one up, I guess. Right, or you have to find the the commonality. You have to find, okay, what is it that, you know, this artist is really looking to achieve? And then you have to go on, you know, gut response. You know, is this is this getting this singer, like, to do the right thing? Or are they lost? Are they feeling this or are they just not getting it at all? You know, and, and, I, and I will say part of it, like, you know, working with newer artists and newer bands, there is definitely, you know, there has to be a conversation at the beginning of the record. And I, I've run into this part of the conversation many times where I'll be sitting with a, an artist or a band and I will say it's it's mostly like newer bands or artists where they're like, yeah, you know, like we, we really want the drums of Vampire Weekend, but we want the guitars of like System of a Down and we want the vocal sound. And it's like, <laughs> it's like that. holy shit, Love dude, that. you are just like, you are, you just don't get it, you know? And what I will try and say to these artists is, here's the thing, you can imagine how something sounds in your head any way you want, you can imagine heavy guitars with, a, you know, you know, like there's a zillion Vampire Weekend drum sounds, but, you know, you can imagine those two things together. Just because you can imagine it doesn't mean it physically can happen. You know, when bands have this vision, they need to really think about the key of the song and the tempo of the song and the style of the song, you know, and you know, kind of the vibe that they want to get across. It, you know, all of these things have to, you know, have to be taken into consideration. It's like, you know, if you have a big warm kick and your tempo is 175 BPM, well, that's just going to sound like mush. You know, it's, it's just the physics of it just doesn't make any sense. 
Yeah, we've I've had uh, extreme death metal bands that play at like two seventy five, right? With like double bass the whole time and blast beats and just like dr- a drum Olympics, wanting to sound like the Metallica Black Album snare, right? And it's like you don't understand. This yeah. is not like if we actually tried to create the Black Album drums, which first of all, it's not going to happen. But uh, just say it did, like you know, if. Right. Uh, if we were to manage to pull that sound off in three days, uh, three days on top of that. Um, and if you actually heard what extreme death metal sounds like with these kinds of drums, you'd fire me. <laughs> like It's not what you actually want. Right, right. It's just but, not. And, and that's the thing also is when you're like, well, th- that isn't what you're looking for. I, I understand, but... That you know you don't want that. Here's what you want. Here's what you're saying, and you know, and th- there's a there's definitely a more um, politically correct way to to say that. I have a and hard time with that. <laughs> I get it, you know, because sometimes I definitely get to the edge. I'm like, look, you know, I'm more than happy to to work with you guys to get what you're looking for, but at the same time, you have to listen to what I'm saying and. That you know, where's the line though? Where's the line? Because I think that like what an a great mixer, a great producer, a great engineer does is they take that fantasy sound and they make it reality. However, that fantasy sound from what they start with oftentimes changes once they get to work, and that's the same with songwriting and composition. I know that whenever I've had a song in my head at first, like a vision for it. After actually working on it, the vision changes because reality gets interjected into that vision. We all have to have some sort of a fantasy of some sort of what it could be. And sometimes I think artists just don't know how to translate it. That is why they hire you. So where's the line between when they're just being artists and they need you to help achieve that vision versus when they're just being completely ridiculous, like the Black Album sounds on Death Metal at 275. Right. Uh, well, you know, that's, that's a good question, and I think it's, uh, I don't know that I have an answer because it really depends on the scenario. You know, I think, uh, you know, there's politics at play here, and, you know, one member of the band may feel a certain way, and the other members of the band may be saying, ignore him. Don't worry about him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. So, you know, <laughs> yep. you you have to, you, you know, you kind of have to play the room to some extent and just kind of feel it out. And ultimately, you know, look, you want everyone to be happy and I want to be happy with the end result. Uh, you know, it's just coming to that common ground. And I think, you know, where I try and take it to is, you know, if the Black Album drum sounds were were the uh, the goal, I would say, you know, I get it. You know, you want a an important drum sound, and I think this record needs an important drum sound, but let's make it your important drum sound and not Metallica's important drum sound. And I, and I thoroughly believe that, too. It's like, well, you know what? Metallica already made the Black Album. Why not make... A while ago. Yeah, exactly. A while ago. And... Most of it's triggers anyway. <laughs> but, um, 
you know, little known fact. Yeah, I mean, it is, uh, and I, I don't think Bob Rock would tell you otherwise. You know, no, no, it, not Bob Rock. I, I there's a lot of internet experts who uh, will be like, you know, anything with samples on it is bullshit. Just right. look at albums like the Black Album. Right. That's real drums all the way, no samples, blah, blah, blah. Because back in the day, people knew what they were doing and did shit for real. It's like, bro, they've been using samples a long time. Yeah, since Wendell. You know, that was uh, Roger Nichols' drum machine that he used on Steely Dan records. You know, it's it's been around forever. Um, But uh, I I think the, the point that I try and make, and it's not a, you know, a get off my back technique. It's a, it's true. It's like, I want to make a record with you guys that doesn't sound like Metallica, for example. I want it to sound like you. So let's, that should be our goal. Let's get, you know, important drum sound, yes, but it's your important drum sound. It is not the Black Album. And I appreciate that as the the brass ring, so to speak. And you know, this is what we're shooting for. But put that into your own perspective of who you guys are as a band. You need to find out who you are as a band. And then that stuff starts to make more sense. I think that is a, uh, a new band reaction. You know, we want it to sound like the Black Album. I think once bands really know what they sound like, less of that starts to happen. And when I say, like, know what they sound like, you know, I, I think there's a uh, a bit of cognitive dissonance with new bands. Uh, I don't know, are you familiar with that term at all? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, and so you know what I mean. It's like where a band says, well, you know, we sound just like Pink Floyd. And it's like, dude, you sound nothing like Pink Floyd. Let's just, you know, let's just you know, call a spade a spade here. You don't sound like Pink Floyd. Let me just give you guys the actual definition for people wondering what it means. I just looked up the actual textbook definition. Okay, yeah, good. Which is the state of having inconsistent thoughts, beliefs, or attitudes, especially as relating to behavioral decisions and attitude changes. Yes. So you think you sound like Pink Floyd, but you sure as hell don't. And you don't, and... And, you know, and not that you sound bad, like you're a really cool band, but you're not Pink Floyd. You don't sound like Pink Floyd. And that's okay. And I find that once bands kind of understand that and they know, all right, you know what? We really don't sound like Pink Floyd, but we're, we're okay anyway. We still sound like a cool band. Once they kind of hit that point in their, you know, existence, everything makes a lot more sense, and making records becomes a lot more of a, it becomes a lot more creative instead of like chasing some non-existent dragon. It's like you're making records that sound like you. And if you don't like the way something sounds, well, then you change it. You know, then it's like, all right, well, you know what? I, I play way too many toms. I'm going to get rid of, you know, four of my 10 toms and I'm only going to play six toms now. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, or something <laughs> like six. that. Right? Only six. It's like, I'm going to make a difference because this is what I want to hear instead of, here, you do it. You know, it's it, it starts on the other side of the microphones. It's like, if you're playing, you know, if, if you're hitting the drums like one drummer, but you don't want to sound like that, then you have to stop hitting the drums like that. 
If you hit the drums like a jazz teacher, but you want it to sound like Dave Grohl drums, you better adjust the way you hit. Right. There you go. Thank you. That you, you nailed it. It's uh, and that and that's the thing that you know I will have great in-depth conversations with a drummer about when we're starting a record. It's like, well, you know, what are you looking for? What style? What what are we what are we going after here? See, here's how I'm hearing it. I'm hearing it a bit more like a vintage tone. So I'm talking about like an older set of drums, like an older set of Ludwigs with not necessarily any stuffing in the kick drum, you know, like with a hollow kick drum, but tight, you know, like a you know, 22-inch kick drum, nothing big. Um, how are you hearing it? Well, you know, I really want the kick drum to be like super focused and tight and, you know, in your face. Okay, well then my feeling about the, the drums might be off. So we need to adjust it a little bit. Now, the question is when, if you're discussing that with someone like Rick Rubin or a highly skilled engineer, then just saying those things like size of drum, type of drum, stuffing or no stuffing, mic choice, all those things, right? Right. Like you guys are speaking the same language. So you can kind of get to, I feel like by just speaking that language and just being like, this is what I want, and then you throw out the scenario that I just said, like this type of this with that type of that, this recipe, and they say, no, that recipe's wrong. Maybe I'm thinking more this recipe. Right. You get to the final, you get to what, you get to the vision, but what about when you're working with someone who doesn't have that vocabulary at all? I want them to sound like they make blood come down your face. Right. I think there, then there's a little experimentation that has to happen. Um, you know, if, uh, if your drummer doesn't have a lot of recording experience and doesn't know what, you know, what the right setup would be for the type of sound he's going for, then you kind of have to guide them a little bit. You know, if, uh, I want it to sound like cannons, and I want to sound like I'm 48 feet tall. <laughs> Give me that drum sound. Right. So, okay, so it's not a 26-inch kick drum. It's probably a 22 or a 24-inch kick drum. It's probably a hole in the front of the kick drum with uh, some stuffing in it, but maybe not against the beater head. So you get some tone out of it, but you get weight, because what makes drums sound big is weight is when you feel them hit. So, and the other thing that gives drums weight is tightness. Like, a big-ass drum room isn't going to give you big-ass drums necessarily, you know, if you're not filling up that room. You have your big-ass tails. Right. <laughs> so, you know, uh, sometimes in bigger rooms, what, what I've done in the past is run a PA system with the drum kit. So you send the kick drum and the toms and maybe the snare through the PA to hype up the room. And that's really cool. I mean, that's a, that's a great trick for that kind of drums. You know, if you're looking to do like those, those big, big drums, like that's a great way to do it. Another way is to like keep the drum room tighter because when it's tighter, you're hearing more of the drum and less of the ambience around it. And I think when you can do that, 
you can take that in mix and you can make that blow out more. You can make that punch through guitars harder because there's more of you know just there's more of it. There's more of it to hear. I think a super ambient drum sound on heavier music can get lost, you know, depending on, you know, the direction you take with guitar tones and bass, you know, all of that, there's, you know, all those factors kind of work together. So if someone was to come to you with, with that kind of language, then it's almost like, like you just did, you, sounds like you go to the to the recipe book almost, and it's like, we could try this, or we could try this, or we right. could try this, or we could try this. Right. And so, you know, you come with some suggestions, and you see what makes sense. You also have to take into consideration budget. You know, I know that's, that's a, that nobody likes to talk about the B word, but, but if, it's uh, true. It's true. And it's like, well, oh, th- running the PA, that's great. We want to do that. Okay, well, we got to rent a PA, and we need a sizable room. Okay, great. Okay, well, that sizable room is about 1800 bucks a day, and the PA is probably, I don't know, three, 400 bucks a day. So 2200 bucks a day to record those drum sounds. I'm down. <laughs> Who's paying for it? <laughs> Plus, are you hiring a drum tech tuner guy for that stuff? Right, and, and that's, another, that's, that's another thing that's, uh, that I find super critical. You know, unless you have a drummer who really is comfortable, uh, or, you know, tuning his drums. <laughs> oh, just out of curiosity, what percentage of drum sessions have you worked with a drummer that you would trust all the way to just tune the drums and do it exact, not just tune them okay, but tune them like album ready? You know, surprisingly, it, again, it really depends on the style, you know? It's like if you're going for like big, big rock drums, you really want to have a tech in there only because it's... Uh, it's a pretty arduous task. There's a you know there's a lot to go through. It takes it takes a little more time, and you really want to finesse stuff. You know, it's uh, it's really about getting in there like nitty gritty, and it's about um, a lot of okay. Well, let's try it with the coded. Yeah, not really feeling the coded. Could we try clear? Could we try clear with a dot? And these are like you know these aren't like big tweaks, but they become important tweaks. Because it's like, well, you know, the the coded don't sustain as long. Well, that probably makes sense because these songs are pretty quick. So, you know, what we should stick with the coded. Do we want to have uh, Do we want to have skins on the underside of the toms? Well, yeah, probably. But you know what? We could try it without for this song. That might be interesting because it'll have more of like a tribal feel if we do that. It'll feel more like you know. Phil Collins drums if we pull the bottoms off. So, <laughs> so all right, so let's try that. You know, and when you want to kind of run through options like that, you don't want to necessarily throw it on your drummer. It's great to have another set of hands there who's like, okay, I'm on it. And he'll just go through and he'll set it all up. Or, or they'll be like, there's another kick drum that's set up differently. Or, okay, well, we can try swapping these toms out for those toms. You, you want to have that person kind of in your corner who will, you know, 
mix it up for you or with you. A real expert too, because yes. I feel like yes. like those drum guys, like the real good techs, they are to drums kind of like what a luthier is to guitar construction. Like oh, absolutely, it is their passion in life. Yeah, it, and God bless them because they have made my recording so much better. I, I've really only worked with one or two that are just unbelievable, but they are. You know, they're a godsend. And it's it's not just saving the drummer a lot of, uh, you know, from hitting too much and get tiring themselves out before they can even play. It's also about your ears. If you're in there with the drum all day long hitting it, you're using up your valuable ear real estate for things you don't need to. And then it's going to make things take even longer, I think. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think, you know, you need to keep your drummer fresh as much as possible, um, but not excluding him from the equation. Because no, know, of course not. What I've what I've learned, you know, and now I just assume it is that your drum tech is going to hit the drums way different from how your drummer hits. Absolutely, and not necessarily worse. <laughs> Sometimes better. Sometimes Actually, better. Yes. <laughs> you know what's funny? I have this the drum tech, his name is Matt Brown. He's phenomenal, the one I work with uh-huh. the most. Um and you know, we would always take sample hits in every session, always. Um just for whatever reason. And I mean for whatever might come up where you might need it. I would always have him do it because nine times out of ten, he just hit the drums better than the drummer did. Right. He just, he's just perfect, has just like the perfect hit. Because I mean, so much of how a drum sounds is the person playing it and how they play it that I feel like someone who is obsessed with drums, like one of those drum tech guys, I'm, they have pretty much worked out that part of the equation too. They've worked out everything that goes into making a drum sound great. So oftentimes their ability to hit the drum is just fantastic. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I've I've been lucky enough to work with a couple of drum techs who have forgotten more about drums than I'll ever know. You know, like uh, there's a guy Mike Fasano who I've done a, a bunch of work with out in LA who's who's brilliant and just so easy to work with. And you know, you give him uh, you give him a a goal. It's like here's what we're looking for. Here's the sound we're going for. And he'll be like, okay, give me a second. And he'll go dig out the snare. Go dig out, you know, tune up the toms, and it'll be like something like this. And, you know, eight and a half times out of 10, it's like, it, not only is, in the, is it in the ballpark, but it's like, yes, that's right. And uh, another guy that I did a ton of records with is a guy named Lee Smith, who uh, used to own a company called Drummer Paradise. And that guy just knew everything. You know, well, how did uh, how did John Bonham get that snare sound? You know, what was he using for this? And he'd be like, "Oh, well, you know, that's uh, that's a uh, you know," and he would just like rattle off everything, like you know, down to like the skin, and be like, "Jesus, all right, great," you know, and and he could make it all happen, you know, or you know, during a take, he'd lean in and he'd say, "Sounds like the snare fell," you know, the the tuning on it. Yep. And be like, all right, let's stop. You know, we'd stop and go out and say, okay, can we do lug locks? Uh, lug locks don't really work on the snare. 
we're just going to have to earball it, you know? And I'm like, okay. My favorite thing is when Matt will lean over to me in a session and say, tell the drummer to put a, to do a half turn on the lug closest to him right. on the eight inch tom. <laughs> yeah, Problem there you go. solved. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, th- those guys are uh, are rare and but essential. You know, they it's really makes it makes all the difference. And I, I mean, I've I've done uh, multiple records where you know I've been like, God, the drums just sound just they just don't sound good. What is going on? And then I have the tech go out there and hit them. And it's like, oh no, they actually do sound good. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and it's so, and you know, and and that's kind of taught me that it's it is so much about the player and and like the the instrument really is secondary. I mean, that's for guitars as well. Absolutely. You know, I've um, I, one of the greatest learning experiences I ever had about that was I. Uh, I did a bunch of work with the uh, DeLeo brothers uh, when they were a uh, production team for a little bit back in the uh, early 2000s. Dean and Robert DeLeo, the, uh, who were the guitar and bass bassist for Stone Temple Pilots. Yep. Both awesome. They're great. Awesome guys and fantastic musicians. Like, really, really, you know, uh, cream of the crop. I remember back in the day, and I was a teenager in the 90s, but... I just remember reading interviews about how all the out of all the bands from that era, they were considered like the musicians' musicians. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they were they were as a lot of the other bands may have been awesome, but uh but just like awesome bands. Like these guys were like real deal musicians. They were I mean they were they could have been uh studio musicians in their own right. You know, they were completely capable of playing whatever. And we were working on, uh, and forgive me, but I, I don't remember the name of the band. Uh, it was a... That's okay. It was probably like, uh, you know, 2002 or three. And... Uh, it was, was it one of their other bands? No, no, it was a band that they were producing as a team. Ah, okay, okay, got it. And uh, we're working on the guitar solo. And so Dean brings in all of his... You know, his amps, his guitars, like his beautiful strats and great old tellies and, you know, gorgeous Fender tweeds and like AC30, like all the the best and finest guitar amps and guitars you could want. And we're getting a solo sound for this one part and it just sounds terrible. Like, what is going on? So I'm like, you know, I'm t- telling the assistant, can you change out the mic? I like it. Just sounds all like muffled and dead. Like let's try a different mic. All right, st- sounds the same. Let's try a different mic pre. All right, is there a comp- pull the compressor off? All right, take the EQ out. Still sounds like shit. What is going on? And this whole time, Dean is kind of sitting with the uh, the soloist. And uh, at one point, Dean's like. Wait, wait, and this is a complete different conversation going on now. So Dean says to the the guy uh, trying to play the solo, here, give me the guitar for a sec. Let me show you what I'm talking about, you know, for a specific part. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Dave, roll the tape. Just, you know, put me an input. So I, I, put him into, I put him into record, and the guitar explodes out of the speakers. Like, it sounds like God. 
And, <laughs> and, and I turn around and I look at, I look at Dean and I was like, what, what just happened? And that's when I put like two and two together. I was like, it's because then he gave it back to the guy who was trying the solo and it sounded like the guy had oven mitts on, you know, like <laughs> just no definition, no clarity, nothing going, you know, no sort of solo presence at all. And that's when I realized it, it's got nothing to do with the guitar, the amp or the pedal you're playing through. It's all the fingers and the fretboard, you know, and and how you dig into the guitar and how you approach the guitar, that's what makes the guitar sound. So if you put Dean DeLeo on a, little, on a piece of shit Squire Strat going through a crate amp, guess what? It's going to sound like Dean DeLeo, no matter what. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for saying all this. Um, we try to, try to get this through to our uh, students all the time because I oftentimes see them getting really, really obsessed with this amp over that amp and right. just too much about guitar gear. And I guess it's become a uh, an internet cliche a little bit to be like, it's the hands man, but it is the it hands is. man. <laughs> like, it, it, it really is. That's yeah. The reason that became an internet cliche is because people who know have been speaking it, speaking this truth for a while. And so the problem... I think for people who are learning online is if they don't have somebody great to mentor with, one of the things that we do with like URM and now the mix is we try to give them, because we work with real tracks and real producers, they get to see some of where the bar is at. But like for a lot of people, if they don't have a way to know where the bar is at, they might think they're really good at guitar when they're not even close to good enough. And so they'll say, but I am already awesome. Right. My hands are my hands are there, bro. Like, it, I just have a shitty amp. And it's impossible <laughs> to really get through to them because they don't have a frame of reference for what really good actually means. But, dude, I know this is so true. You hand me John Petrucci's rig, it's not going to sound like John Petrucci. You put Zach Wilde. On John Petrucci's rig, it's going. It's not going to sound like John Petrucci. It's going to sound like Zach Wild. Exactly, and that's just how it works. Yeah, there is no way around that. You know, obviously there are some amps that sound better than others that work better yeah, with the course. style of music you're doing. Of course, of course. But at the end of the day, it's like how you hit that guitar, how you strum that guitar, or pick that guitar is how you get that tone. Absolutely. So in your Experience. Well, no, not in your experience. How about in that particular story with the DeLeo brothers? What happened? How did that conclude? <laughs> if, uh, I mean, so once it came clear to you that it was the player, well, one thing that I've learned is it's kind of like with wedding photography. I have a friend who's a wedding photographer. He's a great photographer, um, does all kinds of stuff, but the weddings have been like, until he started doing politicians and athletes, weddings were like his thing. And one right. thing that he would always say was that the 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 brides would always be like, can you make me look like I'm 30 pounds lighter? It's like, <laughs> yeah, here's my time machine. We're going right. to go back 90 days. Right. And uh, here's an exercise plan and a diet plan. and Or we could just postpone your wedding right. by three months. 
and uh, lose 30 pounds, and I will make you look like you lost 30 pounds. So, <laughs> like, you, you only you can only be what you are, right? It, that guitar player is not going to suddenly get amazing right there and then. Right. So what do you do, or what did you do? Well, I think, you know, this may sound shitty, but you kind of have to lower the bar. You know, it, it's like, all right, you know what? This guy isn't going to sound like Dean DeLeo. Let's just get him to sound the best he can. And I think what we may have ended up doing was like uh, coming up with a harmony for the solo to kind of thicken it out. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like kind of tailoring the part to what he was actually capable of, you know? And I think not trying to throw some, you know, something at him that was over his head. It's like finding the way to make him sound the best he could. And, uh, you know, that kind of kind of goes around to my initial point. It's like you have to find a way to make the band sound the best that they can because, you know, you can't, you can't change the talent that you've been given to work with. You have to find the right place creatively that suits them, where they're comfortable. You know, as another thing, you know, when I'm talking to singers about you know, who, who are also the writer of the song, or even who's ever writing the song. It's like, write it, you know, make sure that the key is so that your singer is singing in the strongest possible range as much as possible. Like, because if he's not singing, like, in the meat of his range, and he's always straining to get it to sound right, well, you're going to have two problems. One is he's not going to be consistent, so you, you don't know what performance you're going to get that night. And two, he's going to blow himself out. And you're going to have a lot of canceled dates because your singer's blown his voice out. And, you know, the, the other thing I like to say is, is this the key that you would play this song in when you get asked to play The Tonight Show? Are you prepared to sing the song like this in front of, you know, 10 million people on TV? If not then you need to consider changing the key. Absolutely. Uh, is this something that most artists you find go with? Like, if you ask them to change the key, if, do they typically just comply? Or I, You know, I think it's a 50-50 thing. And I think sometimes sometimes I'm wrong, you know, and I'm, I, I, will, I will admit that and, and own it. Sometimes when I initially hear something, I'll be like, this sounds too high for you. Am I crazy? And sometimes they'll say, yes, you're crazy. I can hit this. <laughs> this is going to say, it, this is in my range. It'll sound great. And sometimes I'm just, I'll just be like, okay, let's hear it. And I get proven wrong and great, you know, but it's as the producer, it's up to me to bring that up, to at least open that door and have that conversation because sometimes people aren't even aware. It's like, wait, what do you mean I can make this lower? Like, yeah. At what point would you consider replacing a musician with a Ugh. session player? Oh, yeah. boy. Yeah. I mean, it happens. It happens. Like, at what point? You know, it used to be more so before the advent of Pro Tools, honestly. You know, because yeah, true. Pro Tools lets you accomplish the impossible. Um, you know, back when you were just recording a tape, uh, it was more often that the drummer got the hook because 
he just wasn't up to snuff. And <laughs> I've done a number of records, uh, you know, more than a couple with Rick, where the drummer is sitting on the couch in the control room while we're tracking drums. And I, I just, I feel so bad for that guy. But, <laughs> you know, it's just like, uh, you know, I, I'd say most of them actually come around and go, you know what? I couldn't have pulled that shit off. Man, whenever I've had that happen, they typically are relieved. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, with Josh Freeze out there playing it, it's like, all right, well, no, you're not going to get there. You're not going to get there overnight, you know? So Josh comes in and does your drum tracks in two days instead of taking, you know, three weeks to get drums. It's like that kind of made more sense, didn't it? And, you know, most times drummers will watch that and go, you know what, I got... I've got some work to do. I'm really, I'm not there yet. You're right. So do you think that because this was more common back in the day before Pro Tools, that this whole thing about what people could play back in the day is a bit of a myth because there were guys like Josh Freeze that would play on so many people's records that it's, it's yeah, there is a dude who could play. You hear him on like 70 records you listen to. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think more so than people know, because a lot of times uh, these session musicians would play uncredited, you know, and it was to it was to maintain that myth that the band could play or that the drummer could play. And I mean, I remember as a starting out as an assistant back in New York, I would work on records where it was like, wait, is this a band or a solo artist? You know, because not one member of the band is playing on the record. You know, it's all been replaced. And that was a pretty regular occurrence back then, yes. Um, you know, was it the norm? I, I don't know when it started to become the norm. And, you know, and then it kind of dissipated as budgets dried up or as people kind of, you know, I'd say kind of like when grunge came along, like when the 90s, you know, like when Nirvana like broke down the door, I think it stopped being more common. I think that was when there was a turning point. Makes sense. But you just confirmed what I thought. I've always kind of thought that it was a myth. The whole people used to be able to play back in the day. And it's just like, not from what I've heard. From what I've heard, there were there were teams of session musicians who were on call in oh, all yeah. the major cities who would come in and save records quite frequently. And that solo, you think, is this guy you love? Is it not? It's, uh, it's this little Jewish dude who... Played this solo and this solo too. Right, like I've heard. I've I've been hearing about that for years. Yeah. So I've always felt like you know the problems that bands have have always kind of been there. Like there's always been the guy that can't play that well. There's all there's always been those problems. Yes, I, I think there there has been, but I think they might be somewhat exacerbated now. But there is the the workaround and a lot of these musicians who aren't quite as competent know about the workaround so they're less concerned you know uh, so you know a drummer who is marginally getting by you know with some with some work uh, they can sound they can sound good you know it, with some editing it gets a lot better you know so you know something that wouldn't be acceptable you know, back when we didn't have that technology and they would be replaced, you're, that, that really isn't a conversation that comes up now. 
it's uh, all right. Well, you know, we're gonna instead of hiring a session, a session musician, you're like, you know what? I need to bring in an editor to get this to yeah. the place where it needs to be, and that's the conversation that happens now. It's like, all right, well, I'm not gonna have time to do all this. We need to pay somebody to come in and help us out, and that's the replacement to hiring a session drummer most of the time. Well, point being that there is something that has to happen yes. to in order to solve for that problem, and that problem's always been there. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. It, it, it is a, a, a persistent thing, for sure. We talked about another one of these studio myths. Um, I just think that p- earlier, the one with samples, I just think that people... Yeah. Uh, idealize the past, and you know, and it's it's a common thing. I remember in the '90s, people used to think that they wish that they were around in the '60s. But I'm sure that people in the '60s uh, were very, very stressed out with what was going on around them, right. uh, and did not think they lived in the greatest era ever. There's, I think that this is a common thing, and a few of the other studio myths um, that I've heard repeatedly are, you know, guitar players now reamp, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's all yeah. bullshit. Yeah. No, the reamping's been around since the 70s. Uh, yeah. Samples have been around forever, too. Right. Musicians have been sloppy forever, too. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I, I think a, a difference, and t- tell me if, if this makes sense, I think back in the 60s and 70s, like the cream of the crop rose higher. If you were not a good band, nothing happened for you. I think you you needed to have a certain amount of capability in order to get above the fray. You know, now the fray is just massive, you know, because with the advent of, you know, recording in your bedroom, pretty much anybody who has a laptop can say, well, yeah, I'm a producer, I'm an engineer, and it just adds more noise to, you know, the internet. More, you know, there's, you're looking for a needle in a stack of needles instead of a needle in a haystack now. I think that there were sick bands back then and sick musicians, and there are sick musicians now, but I think you're right. The difference now, the signal-to-noise ratio, that's what I call it, is, is kind of skewed. So it's a lot harder to find them, but I feel like there's, and I could be wrong, but I have a theory that there's more talent now than ever. Mm-hmm. And the reason is that because of the internet. Because now people who have a talent can find out about their talent and the barrier to entry is low so they can develop that talent. I mean, it's way, it's hard for them to get noticed because of the amount of noise out there. But back in the day... Um, the resources to even find out if you had a talent were very, very limited. Um, and so I'm sure that there were a lot of people who could have done something. And I don't just mean in music. I mean in... In general. In sure. any in, in general. Yeah. I think that there was a lot of undiscovered talent, whereas nowadays, uh, you know, I, this is a perfect example. Um, so... I was listening to a podcast with a uh, Navy SEAL who was a Navy SEAL in the 90s and 2000s. And he said that, uh, you know, when they did their selections, 
and buds and all that stuff that nobody was ever ready for it. Like they were severely shocked when the selection program came around because all people had ever heard was it's going to be really hard. But there were no like specifics on how to get ready. But now high school kids have all this information on how to train for this. If you want to be a SEAL, this is what they're going to do to you. They're going to make you stay up for five days straight. They're going to make you run around with logs. They're going to make you do like 5,000 push-ups in a day. all All this stuff, it's known. And so there's training programs for how to get ready for that. And so there's a lot of kids going in to the Navy SEAL selection uh, and training program ready. Not to say that it's not difficult, but they're ready. So they're coming in having at least discovered that they have a talent for this sort of thing. And I think it's the same with music. I think it's the same with everything. The only difference now is the fact that there's very few gatekeepers like before means that everybody has a voice, which almost means that nobody has a voice Right. As opposed to before where getting a record deal was like winning the lottery in a way. It was so rare, so close to impossible. But I actually think there's more talent now just because of, or more uh, developed talent now. Yes, I, I, I agree with you on, on that point for sure. But I also see, you know, it's a double-edged sword because, you know, I look at the... Uh, like the singing contests on uh, on TV, you know, like The Voice and American Idol, exactly, yeah. and and you kind of scoff at it, and I agree with you, but like technically, and this is how what I call lay people watch these shows, and they're like, but he's such a good singer, and you know, and I'm like, so what? What what does that matter? When has being a good singer been the the point, the, the point of entry. It's the same with being a great musician. When has been being a great musician been the point of entry? It's having something to say what was the point of entry. And I think what the internet has done is it's made a lot of people decide that they can do this and it's their something to say when it's just, you know what, you, you have a very nice voice and you sing, yes, you, you can sound just like Justin Bieber. That's great. But you know what? We've got a Justin Bieber, and we don't need another one. That's very, very true. But that's the noise I was talking about. Right. The noise ratio is pretty high. Yeah, but I, but I think that the that the that the training videos and the things you're talking about, you know, exacerbates that side of it too, because people watch these, you know, YouTube and how-to videos and cop that thing instead of developing their own thing. That can definitely be a problem. However, I am hearing lots of artists now that are very, very original, mm-hmm. very unique, who yes. came up through the new system. I just think they're they're harder to find. Yes. I just think they're harder to find. There's just that much. You're right. The barrier to entry is low. So what you're getting is a lot of people who nor- you normally would not have ever heard from uh, who clouding up the space for everybody? Right. That's that's the drawback of this. I think that there's you know there's the pros and cons to everything yeah, that ever abso- happens. Absolutely, that's the big con. Yeah, absolutely. But but you're right. Like somebody who wouldn't have been able to afford to get into the studio and make a demo of what they do can now you know do that 
relatively inexpensively and make something that actually sounds, you know, more than passable, that sounds somewhat professional, uh, you know, with very little, um, you know, very little investment in, you know, financially. So I'm a big fan of Billie Eilish. Are you familiar with her? Yeah, sure. I feel like she's a product of now. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's 17 or 18 now. Yeah. She's obviously a product of the modern era. And I know that she writes with her brother, um, and they did it through a home studio. Mm-hmm. And so, and I think she's a fantastic singer. I like a lot of her songs. I wonder if she could have done it in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I feel like she is one, people like her are the artists that, that are being created by this new way of doing things. Yes. Like, I, I wonder if she, if she could have ever developed her talent when you did have to go to a, a demo studio just to put tracks down. If all she had was a four-track in her basement with her brother, would, would they have been able to do this? Well, I, I guess not really kind of knowing her personally or kind of her whole process, it's kind of hard to make that determination because I think if she truly, you know, I, I don't know how her and her brother came to these songs, like how they wrote these songs, because, you know, if those songs exist in a simpler form, I think she probably would have found her way. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I don't know that the songs um, only exist because of the production, which is excellent, by the way. I mean, those records sound phenomenal, um, but I think they're also great songs, and and that's the difference. Oh, yes, for sure. So I think... I think those songs probably would have found their way out in the 90s. You know, I, I will say, you know, I think, you know, women in rock, that has changed a lot as well for the better. And I think they're Absolutely. becoming better represented in this world. And it's, uh, you know, it's women like Billy and, you know, others that have done that, you know, would she have gotten the same chance in the 90s? You know, that might have worked against her as well. You know, it's hard to say, but... True. Back to what I said before, there's pros and cons to every bit of technology and every evolutionary advance in every era. Right. Um, I do think that the, the con of the 90s was that it was... You know, you could have people who had so much potential who just had zero way to ever realize that potential right. or to have a chance at a career yeah, because it was so damn difficult to get out there right. to get started. And the majors were like, they were the gatekeepers and they, and they held a lot of it back. And now, you know, they play less of a, a part in the development and breaking of, of an artist. So... I think in that respect, there is, you know, it's it's a much more open playing field now, and it's a, a lot more of anything goes, as opposed to a a much more kept and orderly thing. It's, you know, it's also really noticeable in the uh, in the way music has is becoming genreless. You know, there isn't, you know, there's yep. there's less of a distinct. All right, this is pop. Okay, this is alternative. This is rock. It's all running together, which I think is amazing because I think it's same here. It's just good music. It's not good because it's rock. It's not good because it's hip hop. It's good music, and I think that's 
a great leveler in terms of what what's great is great. And it's not about who's doing it or what style it is or anything like that. So has this made your job at all more difficult in terms of finding the essence of a sound when the sound of an artist can be very erratic or combining a bunch of things that historically didn't go together, basically genreless. I think the challenge is if you are making a full-length album, which you know is becoming less and less the case these days, is to make it feel as though there's a common thread through the whole record to where I get it. I, you know, I get how this artist can move around in all these styles and feel fluid. I think, you know, Vampire Weekend is a great example of that. Haim is a great example of that, where you can't really peg them as one thing, yet the, the music kind of speaks to all different genres. I love that. That's one of my favorite things about the modern era, especially because I come from the world of heavy music. And I'm in that world because how things have turned out professionally, but I love music from all over. However, I remember how rough it was in the heavy music world to do stuff that was slightly off genre or at all out of left field. Like You'd get crucified, and that's really not there anymore. I mean, that's. I mean, there's always going to be elitists or purists. Sure. But, but the genre wars, I remember from even as late as 2007, but especially in the early 2000s and 90s, that's kind of come and gone. People just find bands they like. Right. I love it. Yeah, I agree. And you know, you look at uh, you know younger younger people's playlists like. Uh, I have a daughter and she's 18 and I, you know, I see what she's listening to. I see what her friends are listening to and it's all over the map and it's all in the same playlist. And I think that's informing how, you know, music moves forward in the future where, you know, uh, peop- uh, kids today, you know, I hate that term, kids today <laughs> well, well, because uh, it's usually used in a negative context. Right, right, exactly. But kids today don't see music in genre anymore. They just see it in what inspires them and what, what they get off on, what, so awesome. what makes them happy. And, and, you know, you couldn't ask for anything better than that, I don't think. I have a lot of faith, man. I have a lot of faith in actually the Billie Eilish generation. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of faith in them. I think that uh, they're growing up smart, they're growing up talented, and uh, they're growing up free from a lot of the uh, mental, societal boxes that we put ourselves into um, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, yes. even early 2000s. Yes, I, I 100% agree. You know, I... I hear some people saying, well, you know, when's guitar going to be back on the radio? When's rock going to come back? It's like, it never went anywhere. It's just not how you remember it. It's, it's taking on a new form. It's, you know, what is rock now isn't rock of the 90s. It's just, it's different. Just the way rock in the 90s isn't rock in the 60s, you know. It's or like, 80s or 70s. Exactly. It's like... You know, you have to embrace the fact that it's what we consider rock is becoming different. 
And that's okay. That's like, you know, that's part of the as part of the journey. If it went back to sounding like the 90s, was like, well, you know, what's the sense in that? You know, been there, done that. It's like, why why are we shooting for that, you know? We already had those great bands. Exactly. It, and, and, you know, that, it, it's that whole joke. It's like, we already have a Led Zeppelin. We don't need another Led Zeppelin, <laughs> you know? We, we, need, we need something else, you know? So, Well, I mean, bands are a product of their era, and the era is so much bigger than just the music and art in it. It's everything. And right. you can't recreate that. You can't recreate a time and place because you would have to recreate the historical moment that you're in. It's not going to work. You right. can't take that back. Right. Society informs the art. It's like where yeah. we are as a society is reflective in what people are trying to say creatively, and or at least you you hope so. And so you, you, there's no way it could be like the '60s or the '70s. It's like there's there's different issues out there. There's different things that people are responding to that they're mad about that they want to speak out about or that you know that's good and that all has to come into play to make things feel relevant that you know that people can identify with it's like you know great music has a universal truth to it it has a universal understanding where somebody can listen to it and they can put themselves in that song and go yeah i get that that's me or you know, I see that, I understand that. And, and I think when you hit that is when you get something big, you know, something that really catches on when you can speak that universal truth. I totally agree. The That side of it is universal, but I think the stylistic part of it is the product of the era you're right. in. Almost like the vehicle in which that uh, universal message is delivered in is the product of the era, and it is what it is. Right. If you were in the 1600s, you'd be working on Baroque music. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, Dave Schiffman, I think this is a good place to uh, to end this. It's been fantastic having you on. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. It was uh, it was a great conversation. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was a pleasure, man. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.